Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 208, Bubbly. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. You can find out more about the new books from the Knitting Out Loud collection by visiting www.knittingoutloud.com. Also, Knit Circus, the online magazine featuring three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can see their latest issue by visiting www.knitcircus.com. Also, holiday vacations and craft lit take you on the road to Rhinebeck. There are still some spaces left. The fun is unbelievable. In fact, I have some news for you about the trip. I just got word from Diane that we are so special that the Emily Dickinson Homestead is going to open two hours early for us so that we can go through, so that we will have enough time to go through Yankee Candle, Kristen Nicholas, and have dinner at the Red Lion Inn all in the same day. And as if that weren't spectacular enough, I think we are actually going to be able to have dinner with Plato and a Platypus walked into a bar, guys. Yes, I think we are going to be able to get our acts together and hook up with the good men who make us laugh. So, lots of exciting things. Please, 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 if you have any questions at all, go to craftlit.com and click on the Road to Rhinebeck link in the upper right-hand corner. Talk to Diane. Ask her questions. She is so wonderful. You will love talking with her. And in other news, travel news, I am bubbly because I am wrapped in bubble wrap. That is the way I am right now. I am also slowly and painfully making my way through building this trip across the country. It's turned out to be more complicated than I thought, uh, partially because the car is acting up and we're hoping the car will make it. So that has started to determine some of the, you know, am I going to get this far kind of questions. Uh, And there's also, you know, there's so much stuff I want the kids to see and so many places I want to go with them and so many people I want to see. And the book the book should be out. In fact, if you have a local yarn store or want me to stop by or want me to sign books on the way through, I will have what I think my itinerary is on the Craftlet show notes. And you can find out about ordering copies of the book for your local yarn store in time for me to get there if you email info at cooperativepress, all one word, dot com, and, uh, and find out about that. It's looking great. And the cover is awesome i just saw it for the first time i'm very excited and um and so you know that's kind of cool i also have ooh, i have one really quick announcement for people in the uk we have a listener in the uk in kentwell whose name is lorna and she works at a tutor festival this is like uh for those of us in the united states uh renaissance fairs so she said um the main event, there's like a time tunnel that you walk through. And when you walk into the magical space, you wind up having to like exchange your money for tutor era money. And 
you are in a completely tutorific world, which is very cool. She will be there uh, on the weekends between the 19th of June and the 10th of July this year. She'll be in the dairy the 26th of June and the 2nd and 3rd of July if you want a personal demo. Very cool. She knows how to make butter. She knows how to make cheese. I recommend taking children <laughs> because that would be so cool. So it's not a cheap thing to do, but it is worth the money, I think, because you show up in 1553, everybody's speaking, looking, acting, doing things that tutors would have done. You will also find people spinning, dyeing, weaving, felting, curing skins, making baskets, painting, embroidering, making clothes, throwing pots, making herbal remedies, and all sorts of stuff, including dairy things that Lorna will be working with. I am going to um, put links to her uh, information and even a little video that you can watch on the craftlit.com website. Sounds good, no? I mean, life is life is cool. Life is life is a mystery, is what it is. And I don't have the answer to that mystery right now. However, I do know one thing. I am going to be spending at least one night in South Dakota, actually two nights, one in Deadwood and one at a friend of ours. And this friend, I've known this guy since I was uh, 12. Not to put too fine a point on it, but that's a long time ago. And you know how I always say, oh, so-and-so is the nicest person in the world, and I always mean it? Well, here's another one. Dave is one of the nicest people in the world. He's also a geographer. He's uh, he lives on a farm in South Dakota, outside of Sioux Falls, and he has, since uh, Thing One and I stayed with him in 2006, he has planted uh, an enormous amount of his property with wine grapes, and he has started making wine, South Dakota wine, and he's winning awards. Now, you would not expect anything less, right, from a geographer, because it probably knows something about mm, soil and mm, growing things and stuff like that. Well, he has done quite well, and I am uploading a link to the show notes so that you can check out his winery. He and his wife do do things like tours and, and stuff like that. And, uh, and they are open by appointment. They have listings for their wines on their website. They have some beautiful pictures on their website. So if any of you are in the greater Sioux Falls area or can get to Sioux Falls, it might be worth taking a hike down to Dave's Winery. It's called Tucker's Walk. Tucker was one of their Afghan hounds. And I actually think we met Tucker before he passed away in 2006. I think... He was the Afghan that we met. Beautiful dogs, sweet dogs. And Dave and Sue, great wine, great people. How can you not be thrilled about that? So I'm going to have at least one wine-filled night on my trip. I'm hoping for more than one night, but God knows with the amount of driving I'm going to be doing, I'm, I feel that I deserve at least one wine-filled night. Um, but we are we are making our plans. We are trying to get everywhere that, that wants me to, to stop or to teach, and I'm, I'm doing my best. Um, but all plans were on hold for a week while we tried to figure out if the car was even going to make it. It appears at this point that it will, although there are still some things that seem to be kind of wonky about it, and I do need to get a new tire. But, you know, there it is. 
So, uh, aside from Tucker's walk, I am not going to regale you with anything else. I have been knitting, yes. I have been drawing, yes. I've been doing both of those things just to keep my sanity together. And I've been packing and packing and packing and packing and packing and packing and writing. Uh, the, the downloadable free How to Knit Socks book has done crazy well. I am almost done in my spare time with the downloadable free How to Knit Socks toe up book and after that point I will be uploading um, and these these will not be free ebooks e these will be um, little e-workbooks that you can buy from from Ravelry and, and from the websites um, heel substitution since I'm not going to be at sock summit this year I'm not not going to be able to teach the the same sock heel class so instead what I'm doing is I'm taking all of the worksheets and handouts and information and I'm compiling those into separate heel books so you can purchase those and then you'll always have available to you the math worksheet that will allow you to substitute a heel that fits you into any sock that you knit ever and so all of that is going to be coming I hope to God I have all of this up and out before I cross the country but yeah so that is that's where I'm at and the women in white I'm I'm going my goal with the women in white is to have podcasts poised and ready to go not new show notes but new podcasts poised and ready to go and they will upload magically on their own while I'm on the road so you will not be in any way shape or form neglected while I am on the road my other goal because technology has finally caught up to what I want to be able to do it looks like no guarantees, but it looks like I will be able to create a streaming podcast on the fly from the road. That means interesting places I see, interesting people I see, anything like that. I will be able to podcast on the fly anytime I'm in a, a Wi-Fi or maybe even a 3G uh, area. I'm going to do a test run of this. And if that works, I will have that podcast feed or something on the Craftlit website in the sidebar of the show notes. And, uh, and that way you can kind of follow the travels as we roll merrily along across the country. So those are my goals in my spare time to get those done for you. Uh, a little travel log, a little audio travel log of the trip. Okay, but now on with the important stuff. Today, boy, do I have a treat for you. Today, Josie Henley of Casting Pod from the UK, from Wales, from Cardiff. Those of you who were on the London Bath and Wales trip, you met Josie at the pub. Short, short, short blonde hair, really funny, ferociously great knitter. Uh, mother of the sun with the other pair of TARDIS socks. <laughs> I have TARDIS socks for my son. She has TARDIS socks for her son. She is stunning. And I was writing back and forth with her because the next two chapters, when they were originally read, they were read by a woman who I think uh, did a fine job with the attitude, but she's from the American South. And the, the voice of the woman for the next two chapters, I felt and Josie agreed with me, really needed to be British for a couple of reasons. One is just because she's British and so far our voices have been largely accurate to their 
physical location in the world. Second, this woman who you will listen to today, Mrs. Michelson, she was the wife of a clergyman, of a, of a minister, and propriety matters to her. And I think it's in the United States or with a, a United States accent, discussions of propriety of this nature, I don't want to say they fall on deaf ears because they, they don't, but it's the subtext and the resonance, I just think, simply do not carry the the same weight and import that they do with a British voice. We don't have the same, uh, historically, in Victorian times, we did, in certain parts of the country, have similarly classed structures. There were certain expectations for women who had ladies' maids and in inside the house and outside the house and upstairs and downstairs servants. These things are, are not uh, surprises to anyone who's watched Downton Abbey or Upstairs Downstairs or 1900 House even. So it's, it's, not, it's not so much that these things are a mystery. It's that the tone of the character today of Mrs. Michelson, it isn't just important to listen to her discussions of propriety although it is. There's more to it than that. As you might recall, Wilkie Collins had kind of an unconventional personal life. And I have a feeling that if you listen between the lines, if you listen to the subtext, not of what Mrs. Michelson is saying, but what Wilkie Collins is saying by allowing Mrs. Michelson to speak the way she does. You will learn an awful lot about Wilkie Collins and his feelings towards the church and his feelings about propriety and his feelings about, I suppose one of the best ways to put it would be small-mindedness. You know, the, the, it's um, not to get needlessly biblical on you, but because she is a clergywoman, I think this probably actually works pretty well. It's, it's the, the kind of person who would uh, make a big deal about being religious themselves and then um, snub Bell Watling in Gone with the Wind or a, 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 a prostitute, or a tax collector, or a homeless man, and, and then continue to be pious and holier than thou and profess great religious fervor, and yet not notice that the people who Jesus hung out with in the Bible were the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the, the unwanted people. And, you know, the the least of our societies, the the people in greatest need of uh, love and respect and understanding and care. Um, I, I think you'll you'll start to hear uh, undertones of all of this coming early on, and then it kind of builds through uh, Mrs. Michelson's testimony in her, her in her two chapters. And that's one of the reasons why I really felt it was important to have not only a good reader like Josie, but also a good British reader whose voice could carry meaning 
with it as well. So today we have Mrs. Michelson. She is the housekeeper at Blackwater Park. If you saw Remains of the Day, she is Emma Thompson. If you saw uh, Upstairs, Downstairs, who is she? She's Rose, I guess. Um, uh, Daunton Abbey. Oh, shoot. I can't remember the name. I can see her face. She's the one who always has the watch hanging around her neck and has the office downstairs. She's always in black. Um, uh, nope, not going to come to me. So um, she's, she's, she's the woman who runs the house for Lady Glide and for Sir Percival. And um, yes, there are many places where you will hear her and you will think to yourself, aha, the lady doth protest too much. So, with that, I will leave you with Josie Henley of Casting Pod from the UK, reading Mrs. Michelson from The Woman in White. Read by Josie Henley Alien of Casting Pods, www.castingpods.co.uk. Read from my Kindle in Cardiff in the UK. The story continued by Eliza Michelson, housekeeper at Blackwater Park. 1. I am asked to state plainly what I know of the progress of Miss Halcombe's illness and of the circumstances under which Lady Glyde left Blackwater Park for London. The reason given for making this demand on me is that my testimony is wanted in the interests of truth. As the widow of a clergyman of the Church of England, reduced by misfortune to the necessity of accepting a situation, I have been taught to place the claims of truth above all other considerations. I therefore comply with a request which I might otherwise, through reluctance to connect myself with distressing family affairs, have hesitated to grant. I made no memorandum at the time, and I cannot therefore be sure to a day of the date, but I believe I am correct in stating that Miss Halcombe's serious illness began during the last fortnight or ten days in June. The breakfast hour was late at Blackwater Park, sometimes as late as ten, never earlier than half-past nine. On the morning to which I am now referring, Miss Halcombe, who was usually the first to come down, did not make her appearance at the table. After the family had waited a quarter of an hour, The upper housemaid was sent to see after her and came running out of the room dreadfully frightened. I met the servant on the stairs and went at once to Miss Halcombe to see what was the matter. The poor lady was incapable of telling me. She was walking about her room with a pen in her hand, quite light-headed, in a state of burning fever. Lady Glyde being no longer in Sir Percival's service, I may, without impropriety, mention my former mistress by her name instead of calling her my lady, was the first to come in from her own bedroom. She was so dreadfully alarmed and distressed that she was quite useless. The Count Fosco and his lady, who came upstairs immediately afterwards, were both most serviceable and kind. Her ladyship assisted me to get Miss Halcombe to her bed. His lordship, the Count, remained in the sitting-room, and having sent for my medicine chest, made a mixture for Miss Halcombe and a cooling lotion to be applied to her head, so as to lose no time before the doctor came. We applied the lotion, but we could not get her to take the mixture. Sir Percival undertook to send for the doctor. He dispatched a groom on horseback for the nearest medical man, Mr Dawson of Oak Lodge. 
Dawson arrived in less than an hour's time. He was a respectable, elderly man, well known all round the country, and we were much alarmed when we found that he considered the case to be a very serious one. His Lordship the Count affably entered into conversation with Mr Dawson and gave his opinions with a judicious freedom. Mr Dawson, not over-courteously, inquired if his Lordship's advice was the advice of a doctor and being informed that it was the advice of one who had studied medicine unprofessionally, replied that he was not accustomed to consult with amateur physicians. The Count, with truly Christian meekness of temper, smiled and left the room. Before he went out, he told me that he might be found, in case he was wanted in the course of the day, at the boathouse on the banks of the lake. Why he should have gone there I cannot say, but he did go, remaining away the whole day until seven o'clock, which was dinner time. Perhaps he wished to set the example of keeping the house as quiet as possible. It was entirely in his character to do so. He was a most considerate nobleman. Miss Halcombe passed a very bad night, the fever coming and going, and getting worse towards the morning instead of better. No nurse fit to wait on her being at hand in the neighbourhood, her ladyship, the Countess, and myself, undertook the duty, relieving each other. Lady Glyde, most unwisely, insisted on sitting up with us. She was much too nervous and too delicate in health to bear the anxiety of Miss Halcombe's illness calmly. She only did herself a harm, without being of the least assistance. A more gentle and affectionate lady never lived, but she cried, and she was frightened, two weaknesses which made her entirely unfit to be present in a sick room. Sir Percival and the Count came in the morning to make their inquiries. Sir Percival, from distress, I presume, at his lady's affliction, and at Miss Halcombe's illness, appeared much confused and unsettled in his mind. His lordship testified, on the contrary, a becoming composure and interest. He had his straw hat in one hand, and his book in the other, and he mentioned to Sir Percival, in my hearing, that he would, t he would go out again and study at the lake. Let us keep the house quiet, he said. Let us not smoke indoors, my friend, now Miss Halcombe is ill. You go your way, and I will go mine. When I study, I like to be alone. Good morning, Mrs Michelson. Sir Percival was not civil enough, perhaps I ought in justice to say, not composed enough, to take leave of me with the same polite attention. The only person in the house, indeed, who treated me at that time, or at any other, on the footing of a lady in distressed circumstances, was the Count. He had the manners of a nobleman. He was considerate towards everyone. Even the young person, Fanny by name, who attended on Lady Glyde, was not beneath his notice. When she was sent away by Sir Percival, his lordship, showing me his sweet little birds at the time, was most kindly anxious to know what had become of her, where she was to go, the day she left Blackwater Park, and so on. It is in such little delicate attentions that the advantages of aristocratic birth always show themselves. I make no apology for introducing these particulars. They are brought forward in justice to his lordship, whose character, I have reason to know, is viewed rather harshly in certain quarters. A nobleman who can respect a lady in distressed circumstances and can take a fatherly interest in the fortunes of an humble servant girl shows principles and feelings of too high an order to be lightly called in question. I advance no opinions. I offer facts only.
my endeavour through life is to judge not, that I be not judged. One of my beloved husband's finest sermons was on that text. I read it constantly in my own copy of the edition printed by subscription in the first days of my widowhood, and at every fresh perusal I derived an increase of spiritual benefit and edification. There was no improvement in Miss Halcombe, and the second night was even worse than the first. Mr Dawson was constant in his attendance. The practical duties of nursing were still divided between the Countess and myself. Lady Glyde persisting in sitting up with us, though we both entreated her to take some rest. My place is by Marion's bedside, was her only answer. Whether I am ill or well, nothing will induce me to lose sight of her. Towards midday I went downstairs to attend to some of my regular duties. An hour afterwards, on my way back to the sick room, I saw the Count, who had gone out early again for the third time, entering the hall, to all appearance in the highest good spirits. Sir Percival, at the same moment, put his head out of the library door and addressed his noble friend with extreme eagerness in these words. Have you found her? His lordship's large face became dimpled all over with placid smiles, but he made no reply in words. At the same time, Sir Percival turned his head, observed that I was approaching the stairs, and looked at me in the most rudely angry manner possible. Come in here and tell me about it, he said to the Count. Whenever there are women in a house, they're always sure to be going up or downstairs. My dear Percival, observed his lordship kindly, Mrs. Michelston has duties. Pray recognise her admirable performance of them as sincerely as I do. How is the sufferer, Mrs. Michelson? No better, my lord, I regret to say. Sad, most sad, remarked the Count. You look fatigued, Mrs. Michelson. It is certainly time you and my wife had some help in nursing. I think I may be the means of offering you that help. Circumstances have happened which oblige Madame Fosco to travel to London either tomorrow or the day after. She will go away in the morning and return at night, and she will bring back with her to relieve you a nurse of excellent conduct and capacity, who is now disengaged. The woman is known to my wife as a person to be trusted. Before she comes here, say nothing about her if you please, to the doctor, because he will look with an evil eye on any nurse of my providing. When she appears in this house, she will speak for herself, and Mr Dawson will be obliged to acknowledge that there is no excuse for not employing her. Lady Glyde will say the same. Pray, present my best respects and sympathies to Lady Glyde. I express my grateful acknowledgements for his lordship's kind consideration. Sir Percival cut them short by calling to his noble friend, using, I regret to say, a profane expression, to come into the library, and not to keep him waiting there any longer. I proceeded upstairs. We are poor, erring creatures, and however well established a woman's principles may be, she cannot always keep her guard against the temptation to exercise an idle curiosity. I am ashamed to say that an idle curiosity on this occasion got the better of my principles and made me unduly inquisitive about the question which Sir Percival had addressed to his noble friend at the library door. Who was the Count expected to find in the course of his studious morning rambles at Blackwater Park? A woman, 
it was to be presumed, from the terms of Sir Percival's inquiry. I did not suspect the Count of any impropriety. I knew his moral character too well. The only question I asked myself was, had he found her? To resume, the night passed as usual, without producing any change for the better in Miss Halcombe. The next day she seemed to improve a little. The day after that her ladyship the Countess, without mentioning the object of her journey to anyone in my hearing, proceeded by the morning train to London, her noble husband with his customary attention accompanying her to the station. I was now left in sole charge of Miss Halcombe, with every apparent chance, in consequence of her sister's resolution not to leave the bedside, of having Lady Glyde herself to nurse next. The only circumstance of any importance that happened in the course of the day was the occurrence of another unpleasant meeting between the doctor and the Count. His lordship, on returning from the station, stepped up into Miss Halcombe's sitting-room to make his inquiries. I went out from the bedroom to speak to him, Mr Dawson and Lady Glyde being both with the patient at the time. The Count asked me many questions about the treatment and the symptoms. I informed him that the treatment was of the kind described as saline, and that the symptoms between the attacks of fever were certainly those of increasing weakness and exhaustion. Just as I was mentioning these last particulars, Mr Dawson came out from the bedroom. Good morning, sir, said his lordship, stepping forward in the most urbane manner, and stopping the doctor with a high-bred resolution impossible to resist. I greatly fear you find no improvement in the symptoms today. I find decided improvement, answered Mr Dawson. You still persist in your lowering treatment of this case of fever, continued his lordship. I persist in the treatment which is justified by my own professional experience, said Mr Dawson. Permit me to put one question to you on the vast subject of professional experience, observed the Count. I presume to offer no more advice. I only presume to make an inquiry. You live at some distance, sir, from the gigantic centres of scientific activity, London and Paris. Have you ever heard of the wasting effects of fever being reasonably and intelligibly repaired by fortifying the exhausted patient with brandy, wine, ammonia and quinine? Has that new heresy of the highest medical authorities ever reached your ears, yes or no? When a professional man puts that question to me, I should be glad to answer him, said the doctor, opening the door to go out. You are not a professional man, and I beg to decline answering you. Buffeted in this inexcusably uncivil way on one cheek, the Count, like a practical Christian, immediately turned the other, and said, in the sweetest manner, Good morning, Mr Dawson. If my late beloved husband had been so fortunate as to know his lordship, how highly he and the Count would have esteemed each other. Her ladyship, the Countess, returned by the last train that night, and brought with her the nurse from London. I was instructed that this person's name was Mrs. Rubel. Her personal appearance and her imperfect English, when she spoke, informed me that she was a foreigner. I have always cultivated a feeling of humane indulgence for foreigners. 
They do not possess our blessings and advantages, and they are, for the most part, brought up in the blind errors of popery. It has also always been my precept and practice, as it was my dear husband's precept and practice, before me, to do as I would be done by. See Sermon 24 in the collection by the late Rev. Samuel Michelson, M.A. On both these accounts, I will not say that Mrs. Rubell struck me as being a small, wiry, sly person of fifty or thereabouts, with a dark brown or creole complexion and watchful light grey eyes, nor will I mention, for the reasons just alleged, that I thought her dress, though it was of the plainest black silk, inappropriately costly in texture and unnecessarily refined in trimming and finish, for a person in her position in life. I should not like these things to be said of me, and therefore it is my duty not to say them of Mrs. Rubell. I will merely mention that her manners were not perhaps unpleasantly reserved, but only remarkably quiet and retiring, and that she looked about her a great deal, and said very little, which might have arisen quite as much from her own modesty as from distrust of her position at Blackwater Park, and that she declined to partake of supper, which was curious perhaps, but surely not suspicious although I myself politely invited her to that meal in my own room. At the Count's particular suggestion, so like his lordship's forgiving kindness, it was arranged that Mrs. Rubell should not enter on her duties until she had been seen and approved by the doctor the next morning. I sat up that night. Lady Glyde appeared to be very unwilling that the new nurse should be employed to attend on Miss Halcombe. Such want of liberality towards a foreigner on the part of a lady of her education and refinement surprised me. I ventured to say, My lady, we must all remember not to be hasty in our judgments on our inferiors, especially when they come from foreign parts. Lady Glyde did not appear to attend me. She only sighed and kissed Miss Halcombe's hand as it lay on the counterpane. Scarcely a judicious proceeding in a sick room with a patient whom it was highly desirable not to excite. But poor Lady Glyde knew nothing of nursing, nothing whatever, I am sorry to say. The next morning Mrs. Rubell was sent to the sitting room to be approved by the doctor on his way through to the bedroom. I left Lady Glyde with Miss Halcombe who was slumbering at the time, and joined Mrs. Rubell with the object of kindly preventing her from feeling strange and nervous in consequence of the uncertainty of her situation. She did not appear to see it in that light. She seemed to be quite satisfied beforehand that Mr. Dawson would approve of her, and that she sat calmly looking out of the window, with every appearance of enjoying the country air. Some people might have thought such conduct suggestive of brazen assurance. I beg to say that I more liberally set it down to extraordinary strength of mind. Instead of the doctor coming up to us, I was sent for to see the doctor. I thought this change of affairs rather odd, but Mrs. Rubell did not appear to be affected by it in any way. I left her still calmly looking out of the window and still silently enjoying the country air. Mr Dawson was waiting for me by himself in the breakfast room. 
About this new nurse, Mrs Michelson, said the doctor. Yes, sir? I find that she was brought here from London by the wife of that fat old foreigner who is always trying to interfere with me. Mrs Michelson, the fat old foreigner, is a quack. This was very rude. I was naturally shocked at it. Are you aware, sir, I said, that you are talking of a nobleman? Pooh. He isn't the first quack with a handle to his name. They're all counts, Hangham. He would not be a friend of Sir Percival Glyde's, sir, if he was not a member of the highest aristocracy. Except in the English aristocracy, of course. Very well, Mrs Michelson. Call him what you like and let us get back to the nurse. I've been objecting to her already. Without having seen her, sir? Yes, without having seen her. She may be the best nurse in existence, but she is not a nurse of my providing. I have put that objection to Sir Percival as the master of the house. He doesn't support me. He says a nurse of my providing would have been a stranger from London also. And he thinks the woman ought to have a trial after his wife's aunt has taken the trouble to fetch her from London. There is some justice in that and I can't decently say no but I have made it a condition that she is to go at once if I find a reason to complain of her. This proposal being one which I have some right to make as medical attendant, Sir Percival has consented to it. Now, Mrs Michelson, I know I can depend on you, and I want you to keep a sharp eye on the nurse for the first day or two, and to see that she gives Miss Halcombe no medicines but mine. This foreign nobleman of yours is dying to try his quack remedies is dying to try his quack remedies, mesmerism included, on my patient, and a nurse who is brought here by his wife may be a little too willing to help him. You understand? Very well, then. We may go upstairs. Is the nurse there? I'll say a word to her before she goes into the sick room. We found Mrs. Rubell still enjoying herself out the window. When I introduced her to Mr. Dawson, neither the doctor's doubtful looks nor the doctor's searching questions appeared to confuse her in the least. She answered him quietly in her broken English, and though he tried hard to puzzle her, she never betrayed the least ignorance, so far, about any part of her duties. This was doubtless the result of strength of mind, as I said before, and not of brazen assurance by any means. We all went into the bedroom. Mrs. Rubell looked very attentively at the patient, curtsied to Lady Glyde, set one or two little things right in the room, and sat down quietly in a corner to wait until she was wanted. Her ladyship seemed startled and annoyed by the appearance of the strange nurse. No one said anything for fear of rousing Miss Halcombe, who was still slumbering, except the doctor, who whispered a question about the night. I softly answered, much as usual, and then Mr Dawson went out. Lady Glyde followed him, I suppose to speak about Mrs Rubell. For my own part, I had made up my mind already that this quiet foreign person would keep her situation. She had all her wits about her, and she certainly understood her business. So far, I could hardly have done much better by the bedside myself. Remembering Mr Dawson's caution to me, I subjected Mrs Rubell to a severe scrutiny at certain intervals for the next three or four days, 
I over and over again entered the room softly and suddenly, but I never found her out in any suspicious action. Lady Glyde, who watched her as attentively as I did, discovered nothing either. I never detected a sign of the medicine bottles being tampered with. I never saw Mrs. Rubell say a word to the Count, or the Count to her. She managed Miss Halcombe with unquestionable care and discretion. The poor lady wavered backwards and forwards between a sort of sleepy exhaustion, which was half faintness and half slumbering, and attacks of fever, which brought with them more or less of wondering in her mind. Mrs. Rubell never disturbed her in the first case and never startled her in the second by appearing too suddenly at the bedside in the character of a stranger. Honour to whom honour is due, whether foreign or English, and I give her privilege impartially to Mrs. Rubell. She was remarkably uncommunicative about herself, and she was too quietly independent of all advice from experienced persons who understood the duties of a sick room. But with these drawbacks, she was a good nurse, and she never gave either Lady Glyde or Mr. Dawson the shadow of a reason for complaining of her. The next circumstance of importance that occurred in the house was the temporary absence of the Count, occasioned by business, which took him to London. He went away, I think, on the morning of the fourth day after the arrival of Mrs. Rubell, and at parting he spoke to Lady Glyde very seriously in my presence on the subject of Miss Halcombe. Trust Mr. Dawson, he said, for a few days more, if you please. But if there is not some change for the better in that time, send for advice from London, which this mule of a doctor must accept in spite of himself. Offend Mr. Dawson and save Miss Halcombe. I say this seriously, on my word of honour and from the bottom of my heart. His lordship spoke with extreme feeling and kindness, but poor Lady Glyde's nerves were so completely broken down that she seemed quite frightened at him. She trembled from head to foot and allowed him to take his leave without uttering a word on her side. She turned to me when he had gone and said, Oh, Mrs. Michelson, I am heartbroken about my sister and I have no friend to advise me. Do you think Mr. Dawson is wrong? He told me himself this morning that there was no fear and no need to send for another doctor. With all respect to Mrs. With all respect to Mr. Dawson, I answered, in your ladyship's place I should remember the Count's advice. Lady Glyde turned away from me, suddenly with an appearance of despair, for which I was quite unable to account. His advice, she said to herself, God help us, his advice. The Count was away from Blackwater Park, as nearly as I remember, a week. Sir Percival seemed to feel the loss of his lordship in various ways, and appeared also, I thought, much depressed and altered by the sickness and sorrow in the house. Occasionally he was so very restless that I could not help noticing it, coming and going, and wandering here and there, and everywhere in the grounds. His inquiries about Miss Halcombe, and about his lady, whose failing health seemed to cause him sincere anxiety, were most attentive. I think his heart was much softened. If some kind clerical friend, some such friend as he might have found in my late excellent husband, had been near him at this time, cheering moral progress might have been made with Sir Percival. I seldom find myself mistaken on a point of this sort, having had experience to guide me in my happy married days.
her ladyship the countess, who was now the only company for Sir Percival downstairs, rather neglected him, as I considered, or perhaps it might have been that he neglected her. A stranger might almost have supposed that they were bent, now they were left together alone, on actually avoiding one another. This, of course, could not be true. But it did so happen, nevertheless, that the Countess made her dinner at luncheon time, and that she always came upstairs towards evening, although Mrs. Rubell had taken the nursing duties entirely off her hands. Sir Percival dined by himself, and William, the man out of livery, make the remark in my hearing that his master had put himself on half rations of food and on a double allowance of drink. I attach no importance to such an insolent observation as this on the part of a servant. I reprobated him at the time, and I wished to be understood as reprobating it once more on this occasion. In the course of the next few days, Miss Halcombe did certainly seem to all of us to be mending a little. Our faith in Mr Dawson revived. He appeared to be very confident about the case, and he assured Lady Glyde, when she spoke to him on the subject, that he would himself propose to send for a physician, the moment he felt so much as the shadow of a doubt crossing his own mind. The only person among us who did not appear to be relieved by these words was the Countess. She said to me privately that she could not feel easy about Miss Halcombe on Mr Dawson's authority, and that she should wait anxiously for her husband's opinion on his return. That return, his letters informed her, would take place in three days' time. The Count and Countess corresponded regularly every morning during his lordship's absence. They were in that respect, as in all others, a pattern to married people. On the evening of the third day, I noticed a change in Miss Halcombe, which caused me serious apprehension. Mrs Rubell noticed it too. We said nothing on the subject to Lady Glyde, who was then lying asleep, completely overpowered by exhaustion, on the sofa in the, in the sitting-room. Mr Dawson did not pay his evening visit till later than usual. As soon as he set eyes on his patient, I saw his face alter. He tried to hide it, but he looked both confused and alarmed. A messenger was sent to his residence for his medicine chest. Disinfecting preparations were used in the room, and a bed was made up for him, in the house by his own directions. "'Has the fever turned to infection?' I whispered to him. "'I am afraid it has,' he answered. "'We shall know better tomorrow morning.' By Mr Dawson's own directions, Lady Glyde was kept in ignorance of this change for the worse. He himself absolutely forbade her, on account of her health, to join us in the bedroom that night. She tried to resist. There was a sad scene. But he had his medical authority to support him and he carried his point. The next morning, one of the manservants was sent to London at eleven o'clock with a letter to a physician in town, and with orders to bring the new doctor back with him by the earliest possible train. Half an hour after the messenger had gone, the Count returned to Blackwater Park. The Countess, on her own responsibility, immediately brought him in to see the patient. There was no impropriety that I could consider in her taking this course. His lordship was a married man, he was old enough to be Miss Halcombe's father, and he saw her in the presence of a female relative, Lady Glyde's aunt. Mr Dawson nevertheless protested against his presence in the room, but I could plainly remark the doctor was too much alarmed to make any serious resistance on this occasion. The poor suffering lady was past knowing anyone about her. She seemed to take her friends for enemies. 
When the Count approached her bedside, her eyes, which had been wandering incessantly round and round the room before, settled on his face with a dreadful stare of terror, which I shall remember to my dying day. The Count sat down by her, felt her pulse at her temples, looked at her very attentively, and then turned round upon the doctor with such an expression of indignation and contempt in his face that the words failed on Mr Dawson's lips, and he stood for a moment pale with anger and alarm, pale and perfectly speechless. His lordship looked next at me. His lordship looked next at me. When did the change happen? he asked. I told him the time. Has Lady Glyde been in the room since? I replied that she had not. The doctor had absolutely forbidden her to come into the room on the evening before and had repeated the order again in the morning. Have you and Mrs. Rubell been made aware of the full extent of the mischief? was his next question. We were aware, I answered, that the malady was considered infectious. He stopped me before I could add anything more. It is typhus fever, he said. In the minute that passed, while these questions and answers were going on, Mr. Dawson recovered himself and addressed the Count with his customary firmness. It is not typhus fever, he remarked sharply. I protest against this intrusion, sir. No one has a right to put questions here but me. I have done my duty to the best of my ability. The Count interrupted him, not by words but by pointing to the bed. Mr. Dawson seemed to feel that silent contradiction to his assertion of his own ability and to grow only the more angry under it. I say I have done my duty, he reiterated. A physician has been sent for from London. I, I will consult on the nature of the fever with him and with no one else. I insist on your leaving the room. I entered this room, sir, in the sacred interests of humanity, said the Count, and in the same interests... If the coming of the physician is delayed, I will enter it again. I warn you once more that the fever has turned to typhus and that your treatment is responsible for this lamentable change. If that unhappy lady dies, I will give my testimony in a court of justice that your ignorance and obstinacy have been the cause of her death. Before Mr Dawson could answer, before the Count could leave us, the door was opened from the sitting room and we saw Lady Glyde on the threshold. I must and will come in, she said with extraordinary firmness. Instead of stopping her, the Count moved into the sitting room and made way for her to go in. On all other occasions he was the last man in the world to forget anything, but in the surprise of the moment he apparently forgot the danger of infection from typhus and the urgent necessity of forcing Lady Glyde to take proper care of herself. To my astonishment, Mr Dawson showed more presence of mind. He stopped her ladyship at the first step she took towards the bedside. I am sincerely sorry. I am sincerely grieved, he said. The fever may, I fear, be infectious. Until I am certain that it is not, I entreat you to keep out of the room. She struggled for a moment, then suddenly dropped her arms and sank forward. She had fainted. The Countess and I took her from the doctor and carried her into her own room. The Count preceded us and waited in the passage till I came out and told him that we had recovered her from the swoon. I went back to the doctor to tell him, by Lady Glyde's desire, that she insisted on speaking to him immediately. He withdrew at once to quiet her ladyship's agitation and to assure her of the physician's arrival in the course of a few hours. Those hours passed very slowly. 
Sir Percival and the Count were together downstairs and sent up from time to time to make their inquiries. At last, between five and six o'clock, to our great relief, the physician came. He was a younger man than Mr Dawson, very serious and very decided. What he thought of the previous treatment I cannot say, but it struck me as curious that he put many more questions to myself and to Mrs Rubell than he put to the doctor, and that he did not appear to listen with much interest to what Mr Dawson said while he was examining Mr Dawson's patient. I began to suspect from what I observed in this way that the Count had been right about the illness all the way through, and I was naturally confirmed in that idea when Mr Dawson, after some delay, asked the one important question which the London doctor had been sent for to set at rest. "'What is your opinion of the fever?' he inquired. "'Typhus,' replied the physician. "'Typhus fever beyond all doubt.' That quiet foreign person, Mrs. Rubell, crossed her thin brown hands in front of her and looked at me with a very significant smile. The Count himself could hardly have appeared more gratified if he had been present in the room and had heard the confirmation of his own opinion. After giving us some useful directions about the management of the patient and mentioning that he would come again in five days' time, the physician withdrew to consult in private with Mr. Dawson. He would offer no opinion on Miss Halcombe's chances of recovery. He said it was impossible at that stage of the illness to pronounce one way or the other. The five days passed anxiously. Countess Fosco and myself took it by turns to relieve Mrs. Rubell, Miss Halcombe's condition growing worse and worse and requiring our utmost care and attention. It was a terribly trying time. Lady Glyde, supported, as Mr Dawson said, by the constant strain of her suspense on her sister's account, rallied in the most extraordinary manner, and showed a firmness and determination for which I should myself never have given her credit. She insisted on coming into the sick room two or three times every day to look at Miss Halcombe with her own eyes, promising not to go too close to the bed if the doctor would consent to her wishes so far. Mr Dawson very unwillingly made the concession required of him. I think he saw that it was hopeless to dispute with her. She came in every day and she self-denyingly kept her promise. I felt it personally so distressing, as reminding me of my own affliction during my husband's last illness, to see how she suffered under these circumstances, that I must beg not to dwell on this part of the subject any longer. It is more agreeable to me to mention that no fresh disputes took place between Mr Dawson and the Count. His Lordship made all his inquiries by deputy and remained continually in company with Mr Percival downstairs. On the fifth day, the physician came again and gave us a little hope. He said the tenth day from the first appearance of the typhus would probably decide the result of the illness and he arranged for his third visit to take place on that date. The interval passed as before, except that the Count went to London again one morning and returned at night. On the tenth day, it pleased a merciful providence to relieve our household from all further anxiety and alarm. The physician positively assured us that Mrs Halcombe was out of danger. She wants no doctor now. All she requires is careful watching and nursing for some time to come. And that I see she has. Those were his own words. 
That evening I read my husband's touching sermon on recovery from sickness, with more happiness and advantage in a spiritual point of view than I ever remember to have derived from it before. The effect of the good news on poor Lady Glyde was, I grieve to say, quite overpowering. She was too weak to bear the violent reaction, and in another day or two she sank into a state of debility and depression which obliged her to keep her room. Rest and quiet and change of air afterwards were the best remedies which Mr Dawson could suggest for her benefit. It was fortunate that matters were no worse, for on the very day after she took to her room, the Count and the Doctor had another disagreement, and this time the dispute between them was of so serious a nature that Mr Dawson left the house. I was not present at the time, but I understood that the subject of dispute was the amount of nourishment which it was necessary to give to assist Miss Halcombe's convalescence after the exhaustion of the fever. Mr Dawson, now that his patient was safe, was less inclined than ever to submit to unprofessional interference, and the Count, I cannot imagine why, lost all the self-control he had so judiciously preserved on former occasions, and taunted the doctor over and over again with his mistake about the fever when it changed to typhus. The unfortunate affair ending in Mr Dawson's appealing to Sir Percival and threatening, now that he could leave without absolute danger to Miss Halcombe, to withdraw from his attendance at Blackwater Park if the Count's interference was not peremptorily suppressed from that moment. Sir Percival's reply, though not designedly uncivil, had only resulted in making matters worse, and Mr Dawson had thereupon withdrawn from the house in a state of extreme indignation at Count Fosco's usage of him, and had sent in his bill the next morning. We were now, therefore, left without the attendance of a medical man. Although there was no actual necessity for another doctor, nursing and watching being, as the physician had observed, all that Miss Halcombe required, I should still, if my authority had been consulted, have obtained professional assistance from some other quarter, for form's sake. The matter did not seem to strike Sir Percival in that light. He said it would be time enough to send for another doctor if Miss Halcombe showed any signs of a relapse. In the meanwhile, we had the Count consult in any minor difficulty, and we need not unnecessarily disturb our patient in her present weak and nervous condition by the presence of a stranger at her bedside. There was much that was reasonable, no doubt, in these considerations, but they left me a little anxious nevertheless. Nor was I quite satisfied in my own mind of the propriety of our concealing the doctor's absence as we did from Lady Glyde. It was a merciful deception, I admit, for she was in no state to bear any fresh anxieties. But still, it was a deception, and as such to a person of my principles, at best a doubtful proceeding. A second perplexing circumstance, which happened on the same day and which took me completely by surprise, added greatly to the sense of uneasiness that was now weighing on my mind. I was sent for to see Sir Percival in the library. The Count, who was with him when I went in, immediately rose and left us alone together. Sir Percival civilly asked me to take a seat, and then, to my great astonishment, addressed me in these terms. I want to speak to you, Mrs. Michelson, about a matter which I decided on some time ago, and which I should have mentioned before, but for the sickness and trouble in the house. 
In plain words, I have reasons for wishing to break up my establishment immediately at this place, leaving you in charge, of course, as usual. As soon as Lady Glyde and Miss Halcombe can travel, they must both have change of air. My friends, Count Fosco and the Countess, will leave us before that time to live in the neighbourhood of London, and I have reasons for not opening the house to any more company, with a view to economising as carefully as I can. I don't blame you, but my expenses here are a great deal too heavy. In short, I shall sell the horses and get rid of all the servants at once. I never do things by half, as you know, and I mean to have the house clear of a pack of useless people by this time tomorrow. I listened to him, perfectly aghast with astonishment. Do you mean, Sir Percival, the time to dismiss the indoor servants under my charge without the usual month's warning? I asked. Certainly I do. We may all be out of the house before another month, and I'm not going to leave the servants here in idleness with no master to wait on. Who is to do the cooking, Sir Percival, while you are still staying here? Margaret Porcher can roast and boil, keep her. What do I want with a cook if I don't mean to give any dinner parties? The servant you have mentioned is the most unintelligent servant in the house, Sir Percival. Keep her, I tell you, and have a woman in from the village to do the cleaning and go away again. My weekly expenses must and shall be lowered immediately. I don't send for you to make objections, Mrs Michelson. I send for you to carry out my plans of economy. Dismiss the whole lazy pack of indoor servants tomorrow, except Porcher. She's as strong as a horse, and will make her work like a horse. You will excuse me for reminding you, Sir Percival, that if the servants go tomorrow, they must have a month's wages in lieu of a month's warning. Let them. A month's wages saves a month's waste and gluttony in the servants' hall. This last remark conveyed an aspersion of the most offensive kind of my management. I had too much self-respect to defend myself under so gross an imputation. Christian consideration for the helpless position of Miss Halcombe and Lady Glyde, and for the serious inconvenience which my sudden absence might inflict on them, alone prevented me from resigning my situation on the spot. I rose immediately. It would have lowered me, in my own estimation, to have permitted the interview to continue a moment longer. After that last remark, Sir Percival, I have nothing more to say. Your direction shall be attended to. Pronouncing these words, I bowed my head with the most distant respect and went out of the room. The next day the servants left in a body. Sir Percival himself dismissed the grooms and stablemen, sending them with all the horses but one to London. Of the whole domestic establishment, indoors and out, there now remained only myself, Margaret Porcher and the gardener, this last living in his own cottage and being wanted to take care of the one horse that remained in the stables. With the house left in this strange and lonely condition, with the mistress of it ill in her room, with Miss Halcombe still as helpless as a child, and with the doctor's attendants withdrawn from us in enmity, it was surely not unnatural that my spirits should sink and my customary composure be very hard to maintain. My mind was ill at ease. I wished the poor ladies both well again, and I wished myself away from Blackwater Park. End of chapter one. Read by Josie Henleanian of Casting Pods, www.castingpods.co.uk. Read from my Kindle in Cardiff, 
in the UK. Wasn't Josie marvelous? <laughs> I love it. So we have uh, next week, based on what you heard from Mrs. Michelson today, we have one of the more shocking revelations from this text showing up next week. There are a series of shocking revelations and, you know, we've they've, all the pieces have started falling into place. Our first big shocking reveal is coming next week. And all of that relies upon you knowing that Fosco is who he is, that he read Marion's diary, that we've heard his voice now. We know what kind of man, or at least we think we know what kind of man Fosco is. And we are so able through dramatic irony to transparently see what Mrs. Michelson is misunderstanding in Fosco's motivations. This is the definition of, of dramatic irony, where we, the audience, know more than the characters that we are reading about. So, I'm so sorry, I have to stop here and make you wait another week. I know, you can write in and tell me how miserable and mean I am, but there it is. I hope you have a great week. I hope it goes by quickly until you can hear the next bit. And thank you once again to Josie of Casting Pod in the UK. Miss Cardiff, Miss Wales, Miss the UK, and Miss you, Josie. Take care. I will talk to you all very soon. Have a good one. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Visit Knitting Out Loud, Listen While You Knit, and Knit Circus Online Magazine, offering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can check out the latest issue at www.knitcircus.com. And What Would Madame Defarge Knit? A new book of knit and crochet patterns coming to you from the Craftlit family. And please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlit supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlit.com. Craftlit can also be accessed by its own Android and iPhone application. You can purchase it at the iPhone or iTouch application store, or you can subscribe free at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.